We are on Yevamos, the bottom of Kuf Tesla Manalaf, 109a, as we begin a new Mishnah. And there'll be a very interesting Gemara commenting on this Mishnah. The Mishnah says, You have two brothers who are married to two sisters, but they are also both Kitanos. They are both minors, married to these two sisters who are minors. Um, so it's a rabbinic marriage. They both have rabbinic marriages. And one of the husbands dies. So the other one, on a rabbinic level, everything's on a rabbinic level here. So the other one, it's like any other case where uh, the uh, the uh, brother-in-law cannot do Yibam because it's also his wife's sister. If two brothers marry two sisters, so it's his wife's sister. And so even though you could marry your sister-in-law if it's your deceased brother's wife, but it doesn't apply if it's your wife's sister. And so therefore, there's an exemption from Yibam. And it also applies to a case which we'll deal with more extensively much later on, if it's another rabbinic marriage where both of the women are deaf-mute. If it's deaf-mute, so then halakhically we say that uh, it's a rabbinic marriage. The next case is the is the more interesting case and, and different case is Gedolo Katana. What happens if you have two brothers married two sisters one of the marriages is to a gedola. Let's say Rachel is above the age of 12. Leah is below the age of 12. So one of them is a biblical marriage. One of them is a rabbinic marriage. What happens in that, in that case? Well, if one of them dies. So what's very clear is that let's say the husband of Leah, Leah is the uh, under 12, if, if her husband dies, so then the marriage, which is a biblical marriage, is still existing with Rachel. So then certainly there's no Yibam because it's Rachel's sister. Two brothers married two sisters. It's Rachel's sister, and so therefore she's totally exempt. The bigger question is, what happens if uh, Rachel's husband passes away? So that's the end of the biblical marriage. There's now, on a biblical level, there is some form of Zika, potentially, some sort of connection to the brother-in-law to the husband of Leah. Uh, but at the same time, there's a rabbinic marriage between Leah and her husband. Let's say the husband's name is Yaakov. Yaakov now has this Zika, has some sort of connection to Rachel uh, on a biblical level, and they have a rabbinic marriage. So what do you do in that case? So there are three opinions in the Mishnah. One case, typically, you have three opinions. So Rabbi Lazar, Omer, So what do we do in that case? Rabbi Lazar says... Because we want them to go ahead and to do Yibam, you can't do Yibam if you're married to her sister, and the Yibam would be on a biblical level. So we say, you know what? Let the sister who he's currently married to try to encourage her to do Mion. If they do Mion, she's in essence uprooting the marriage retroactively, Leah, by doing Mion. Leah is under 12. And so then Yaakov could then go ahead and marry and do Yibam with Rachel. So that's what Rebbe Lazar says. That's how we could solve uh, that problem. Rabbi Gamliel, Omer Rabbi Gamliel says, Yes, if you do mian, that, that would work. But he says, if she doesn't do mian, if Leah doesn't want to do mian, so then wait till she gets older. Once she gets older, so then that's now, it turns once she's above the age of 12, it turns into a biblical marriage. That biblical marriage will now push aside, uh, push aside Rachel. Because now Rachel can't do Yibam because now Yaakov is fully married to Leah. It's a biblical marriage, recognized as a biblical marriage because she's now above the age of 12. And it's 
it's Leah's sister. Rachel and Leah are sisters. So now Rachel is exempt and she can now marry whoever she wants. So wait until Leah gets older, above the age of 12. That's what Rabbi Gamaliel says. Rabbi Yeshua says, no, we can't do that. Rabbi Yeshua says, it doesn't work to do that. We can't, uh, we can't do that because uh, we don't want to do Mian, first of all, so we can't do the first option. And we can't do the second option because there's Zika. And if there's Zika, so then we don't just uh, try to create a scenario where the Zika is pushed aside. It might not even work. So Yeshua says, this is a very difficult scenario. Everyone gets messed over, unfortunately, in this case, because there's really no other option. According to Yeshua, his actual wife, he has to divorce, uh, because we don't encourage Mian uh, to uproot the marriage, as we'll see in the Gemara. Uh, but, so they have to get divorced, uh, because the Zika, he has a Zika relationship on a biblical level with Leah's sister, with Rachel, so therefore he, he can't stay married with with uh, with with Leah, because that's a prohibition to stay married with your zakuk, uh, with your the sister that you're connected to, her sister. So they have to get divorced. But even Rachel, that's now the sister of the woman that you divorced, Leah. It's, it's Rachel is Leah's sister, and she also has to. She requires chalitza also because. Uh, you're not allowed to marry, you're not allowed to do Yibam with your sister, even if it's you got divorced, your sister, your, your wife's sister. You divorced your wife, but you cannot do Yibam with your wife's sister, so therefore you have to do Chalitza. So in essence, according to Rabbi Yeshua, you have to get rid of both relationships, you have to divorce your wife, and you have to do Chalitza with uh, with Rachel. So you have to do Chalitza with Rachel and divorce Leah. The Gemara really, for the most part here, is going into side tangents. But the way it gets into a side tangent uh, is as follows. The Gemara says in Mishari, Rabbi Lazar gave the suggestion that we encourage her to do Mion. Is it really true that we encourage Mion? Mion, again, uproots the entire marriage. She, she's on a rabbinic marriage under the age of 12. Uh, the, she has the option of saying, I'm, I want out. I don't want to be involved in this marriage anymore. Up to the age of 12, she could do that while she's still a min- minor. And it uproots retroactively in the entire marriage. It's like she was never married. Do we really encourage that? But Tani Bar Kafir, didn't Bar Kafir say, Important uh, line: Olam adam A person should should connect to three things. and stay away from three things. He should connect to three things. What are those three things? He should do chalitza. We prefer chalitza over yibum, which happened to be a very big discussion earlier, and we'll see that uh, the reasons for all this in, in a few minutes. Ubavas shalom and in creating peace between people, you should encourage that. Ubafars nadarim and by uh, annulling vows. It's also very important to annul vows, as we'll see why soon. You should stay away from three things. From Mion, we should stay away from Mion. And as Tosas points out, we should also stay away from, uh, we should stay away from uh, even getting into these marriages to begin with uh, for, for a minor. You should stay away from holding on to things from, we'll see, from people that you that you really know and are close with. And from being a cosigner on a loan, for me, we'll see exactly why also. With regards to all this, you should stay away from. This is a different list. The commentators point out this is a list of what creates a further uh, uh, connection versus distancing some sort of connection. At the end of the day, the reason why we're mentioning this is because he says you should stay away from Mion. But Rabbi Lezer just said that we encourage her to do Mion in this scenario. Uh, that's mentioned in the Mishnah. So do we encourage Mion? How can we encourage Mion here if Bar Kafra says that we should uh, stay away from Mion? 
And our answer is no, mian de mitzvah shiny. The reason why you can do mian in this case is because it's for the sake of a mitzvah. The mitzvah is that in the end, he'll end up doing yibam with his sister-in-law, uh, with, uh, with Rachel, who, whose husband just passed away. And so since it's really for a certain purpose, so therefore it is allowed. Even though in general we try to stay away from it, but in this particular scenario we will allow it. Okay. Now we're going to get into the list of Bar Kafra, uh, which will take us on all these different tangents. Gufa, Tani Bar Kafra. Bar Kafra says, He says to connect, to, you should do the following three things. Chalitza. Why does he say to do Chalitza? Which is what the Ashkenazim hold. Ashkenazim say we should do Chalitza. Ka'abashal, like the opinion of Abashal, which we've had um, close to 70 weeks ago. The Tanya, it's taught in a Brisa Abashal, Omer, Abishol said that if you don't have the right intentions for Yibam, you cannot do Yibam. If you do Yibam and you don't have the right intentions, if you do it not because you want to fulfill the mitzvah, but because uh, you want to get married to her, um, or because of her beauty, or for whatever reason, it's not for the purpose of doing the, fulfilling the mitzvah of Yibam. So he says, it's as if you're marrying your sister-in-law as a prohibition. And it's like uh, almost like the child of that relationship would be a mamzer. Uh, so this opinion follows the opinion of Abishol. Others disagree. The Chachamim disagree. And in fact, Sfardim, uh, Ravad Yosef, said that uh, Sfardim should do uh, Yibam if it's possible. We should try to encourage Yibam. But Ashkenazim uh, follow this opinion and say we should really do Chalitza. It's, it's better to do Chalitza. Okay, that's the first statement. Statement number two. Bahavas Shalom, he encourages to make peace between each other. That somebody who uh, tries to encourage peace, so then uh, it'll be very good for them. They'll get rewarded for the peace that they create, both in this world and in the next world. So it's very, it's a, it's a very big concept to encourage peace between one another. The other thing that he encourages is to annul vows. Why? Like Rabbi Nasan, the Tanner of Nasan Omer, Anybody who takes a vow to do something, it's like they have created a bama. A bama is an altar. During the times of the temple, it was forbidden to make an altar in your backyard. You couldn't make one just outside of the temple. You could only bring sacrifices in the temple. Uh, and to bring one outside of the temple, it's like you built this, to, to take a vow, it's like you built this altar. And then when you fulfill it, even though when you're supposed to fulfill it, the, really the right thing to do is to annul it. But when you fulfill it, it's like you've brought a sacrifice on this altar, which is not allowed. Um, it's not allowed. And so you have to, you, we encourage annulling vows. You should not make vows and you should not keep the vows either. You should annul the vow. Uh, what is the idea behind this? So very important concept, which is that uh, making your own bama, your own altar, and making a nether, making a certain vow, an oath, that is outside the 613 commandments, is basically your own form of, you're saying basically, I want to do my own style of Judaism. It's my own style of Judaism. The Torah says I can only bring a sacrifice in the temple. No, I want to bring it in my backyard with my altar in my backyard. Or I want to take on a certain stringency, and so therefore I'm going to make an oath to, to say that I have to fulfill something. Uh, that's also going against the Torah. The Torah has 613 requirements and more. Uh, and you're creating another one. So all of this is, they're connected because it's all about creating your own form of Judaism, which is not allowed. There's uh, 
There's a, the Torah tells us how do we how do we become how do we, how do we become good uh, observant Jews, and so you don't have to create your own path. Very important point. Then he continues to say, He says you have to stay away from three things. The first one is to do mian. Why do you have to stay away from mian? Because we're concerned that if she does mian as a minor, when she gets older, she's going to regret doing it. She's going to regret uprooting the marriage. And so therefore we say, don't do mian, because you might regret doing it later. Uh, as we mentioned, Tosa says that we even try to, try to make sure that uh, they don't get married to begin with. That's also very important, that they don't get married to begin with. Case number two, minapiktonos. You're not supposed to hold on to things from your friends. Why not? Bebar masa dami. We're concerned that if it's really, uh, it's talking about a case where it's, it's somebody who's, let's say, your neighbor, they're always in and out of your house. They're going to take it back without you realizing, and then they're going to ask for it again from you, even though they already took it back. So it's just good advice. Stay away from those scenarios because uh, maybe they'll take it back without you realizing they're always in and out of your house anyways. Um, and so they might have taken it back already. Umin ha'aravon, you shouldn't be a cosigner. Stigmar explains what type of cosigner we're referring to here. Ba'arve shaltzion. It's referring to a cosigner who, uh, let's say in a place where it's the custom to first collect from the cosigner even before you go to the borrower. So that's a bad idea. Don't be a cosigner in a place where the custom is to go to the cosigner first before you actually go to the person who borrowed the money. Uh, how do we know this? There's a verse that says, that there's a certain evil upon another evil. What's this? Or, or bad that falls upon bad. So it could be referring to different things. It's referring to three scenarios. One is accepting converts. And we mentioned in the past, accepting converts, it's very difficult because you have to make sure that maybe... Uh, they won't, they won't uh, observe it as much. Uh, they're not going to take it as seriously. Or maybe uh, we even saw the opposite, that they take it too seriously. That makes us look bad and everybody else look bad. Different reasons that are given as to why we shouldn't accept converts. And we shy away. We don't. We try not to accept converts. Or to be this type of a cosigner who has to be the first one who pays. Or, uh, interesting, we'll get to this case also, somebody who is establishes himself in halacha. He, and we'll see exactly what this means in a minute. You should stay away from accepting converts. That you shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be so eager to convert people. That uh, the co-signer, you shouldn't be a co-signer if they collect from you first. What is okay? This is the third idea. The Tanya. Rabbiosi says, anybody who says all, they don't have Torah, they don't know Torah, so he doesn't have Torah. The Gemara says that's obvious. Pshita. No, it means somebody says, all I have is Torah, all he has is Torah. That's also obvious. Somebody who says that all they have is Torah, meaning all they do is study Torah. They, they don't act upon it. They just study it, but they don't practice what they preach, so then they don't even have the Torah itself. My time, why not? The verse says, the, the verse connects learning to doing, and that you could that studying is only significant. And even you don't, it's like you don't have the studying itself unless you do the actions itself, unless you practice what you preach. The preach itself, not just preaching, but you, you study. Uh, the studying itself is weaker. It's like you you didn't actually fully comprehend it unless you actually act upon it. And many many 
later commentators discuss this concept that uh, you really, without doing, without practicing, the study itself uh, is not uh, is not as great. And so it's like you don't have Torah itself. It's not like it's like you didn't have you didn't have the study either. Iba Alternatively, really, what it means is Really, when a person says all they have is Torah, it doesn't mean they have nothing. They still have the Torah, but they don't have more than the Torah. Why would you? What's this referring to? It's not a case where you teach other people Torah. So you might think that if they practice, so then I should get the reward for practicing. I will just completely focus on Torah itself. Other people, I'll teach other people. They will practice, and then I don't have to practice, and I'll get reward for their practice. The answer is no, that doesn't work. You'll get the reward for the Torah itself, but you won't get the reward for what other people do. You still have to practice yourself. To get the reward for the practice itself. Alternatively, what this means, another very important point is It's referring to judges, a person who a halachic authority who is coming to make decisions. Very important point. You have oftentimes where you ask the question, you know that you've dealt with other similar scenarios, and you know what the halach is there. You're going to extend those those logical arguments. To the current case at hand, when you when you you know somebody that you should be asking, when you have certain sources that you should be looking into, and you don't look into that, and you don't ask about that particular situation, that is wrong. You shouldn't rely on just making assumptions about comparing cases. You should really ask. Halacha is halacha. We have to follow a certain tradition, and you have to know. You have to know. You have to ask. It's and you can't just assume that you are making the correct comparison. Very important point. A halachic authority, when he's when he's deciding halacha, he has to view it as though there's a sword that is in front of him between his thighs, and it's like Gehenim. It's like hell is opened up beneath him. It's such a serious time that uh, and so much is is on the line in, in those scenarios. Uh, it says, in the context of the Sanhedrin of the court, uh, it's referring to the fear of Gehenim, the fear of, of hell as it's uh, opening up in front of you when a person makes a decision in halacha and how serious you have to take it. So these are all very important points about. And when a person says Torah but doesn't practice, perhaps there's two opinions. Is, is it do they even get any reward for the Torah itself? Perhaps they don't get any reward for the study of Torah itself, unless you actually practice it. And the idea that a person can't just uh, decide certain laws and halacha based on previous cases that are not exactly the same case. They're just making assumptions about comparing the two. Ask. You have to ask questions. You have to you have to ask to know what is the case. Ask people that are greater than you. Look into the sources. And then you could uh, decide the halacha. Okay, that concludes that part of the Gemara. And then we'll continue with the Gemara and the commentary on the Mishnah in the next recording.